Hello, and welcome to the Rockefeller Center's podcast, Rocky Talk. My name is Kavya Navarthi, and I'm a 25 at Dartmouth College. It's my honor today to be joined by Bill Barrow, national politics reporter at the Associated Press. Mr. Barrow covered President Joe Biden's 2020 campaign and the dynamics of the Democratic Party during the Trump era. He has covered primaries and political trends across South Carolina, Louisiana, and Alabama. As a Harvard Neiman Fellow in 2021-2022, he studied the intersections of identity, movement, and establishment politics in the United States. Mr. Barrow is visiting Dartmouth today to deliver a lecture titled, Covering American Democracy. It's not a game. At least it shouldn't be. Mr. Barrow, I'm honored and excited to, have, to welcome you to Dartmouth. I'm, I am very excited to be here. All right, so to begin, um, I want to jump right into the topic of your lecture today. Um, I'm really interested in this phenomenon that you highlight in the description of your lecture. Um, you write, quote, the cultural divisions that are fraying American institutions. Um, so what trends in journalism, if any, would you say have contributed to this sort of waning public faith we see in our institutions? And, you know, I guess jumping ahead, what do you think we can do about that? All right, yes. I think I would put a label at risk of oversimplifying, which is a part of my critique. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think we are in an era of what I would call red-blue journalism. And it is also true that we are in an, an era of hyper-partisanship in American politics. That is real, and it's, it's difficult to draw a simple cause-and-effect line there. Um, but the longer I've covered politics, the clearer it has become that at the least there is kind of a reinforcing vortex uh, here. And, and I'm thinking about some of the you know, public opinion research going as far back, in theory, going as far back as Walter Lippmann and, and then later the agenda-setting theory, this idea that, that the public uh, sometimes can see the world as it is presented in media. Uh, and the research that that suggests campaign coverage and political coverage doesn't necessarily tell the electorate what to think, but it does hold strong demonstrable influence over what issues get the most attention and what voters say they care most about. Uh, And then overlaying that in the last few decades, which is my career, where my career spans, uh, we just see so much emphasis on the sectarian politics, on the factional politics, and and I call it that red-blue journalism era, you know, reminiscent of the yellow journalism that, that we've studied in the old newspaper wars of the late 19th and early 20th century, and that was driven by sensationalism of all kinds, not just in politics, uh, but it comes, it becomes kind of this sensationalism and a personality-driven politics, and us-versus-them politics, and there's a better, more nuanced way, I think, uh, that you know recognizes that that politics is always hard. I don't mean to e- represent that we've ever been able to organize ourselves in a democracy in a way that isn't inherently messy. That's what democracy is in whatever form you, you have it. Universal suffrage. You know, we we fought for generations before we got to universal suffrage in this country, and then once you get it, we do have two political parties with legitimately different philosophies that smart people can debate and argue about. Like, there are, there are these complicated ideas. It's okay that we have partisanship. Um, I, I think it becomes less okay, less productive, when journalism gravitates to a frame that 
starts and ends with that partisanship instead of a bigger frame that gets into the ideas and into the people on the ground and how policies are actually made, how they're implemented, and what their effects are. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so you know, you're talking about kind of the red-blue politics, personality-driven politics. Um, another trend that I'm pretty attentive to myself is kind of the market decline in subscription to cable-style media outlets, right? Um, and in turn with that, the growth of independent and alternative media sources. So, you know, as an example, outlets like Fox, MSNBC, and CNN now have just a fraction of the audience of, for example, popular podcasters like Joe Rogan. Um, and, you know, other alternative media outlets as well as independent journalists are, are sort of taking over the audience mm-hmm. of traditional cable media. media. So um, I, w- I want to know, what's your take on, on these trends? What, what do you think that reveals about the state of our media today? Uh, in, in terms of just assessing it you know, more from an economic point of view, it, it's that we've always talked about the marketplace of ideas and the idea of a free market. Uh, in the Internet era, that does allow everything from citizen journalism to former legacy media journalists that leave and go on their own, independent outfits that they, they can start up very easily. We're, we're sitting here in a room in Dartmouth with two microphones, a couple of recording devices, and a laptop connected to the internet, and you're going to send this out to the world. And that's a pretty low barrier to entry. Uh, I, I think it would be hypocritical and irresponsible to say that that in and of itself is a bad thing. Um, uh, I, I think it's just incumbent on all of the players within that marketplace, whether these new independents, whether citizen journalists that some of the legacy media world doesn't want to acknowledge as journalists, and then those institutionalists who remain in legacy media, what, whatever your approach, wherever you're coming from, uh, I think the, the value set and uh, the highest objective ideal and highest objective priority still needs to be full and fair context uh, that doesn't gravitate to the lowest common denominator. Now, it's clear that's not always happening. Um, And there's, I don't want to say that we're we're wasting our time talking about this, but yes, we do have to admit I have to admit, talking about, you know, and giving the kind of talk I, I, I came to Dartmouth to give, that there's no rational way to force this and to legislate it or to regulate it. That, that's the antithesis of what the marketplace of ideas even means. Um, but we have to talk about and advocate these values and demonstrate them in our work wherever it is we're doing it in that marketplace. Yeah. Because it all feeds on itself. Right. Yeah, so I'd love if you could um, get more into what you mean by kind of establishing this, this marketplace of ideas. And also with that, if you could get into um, some of your experiences on the ground as a journalist. Um, are there any kind of key anecdotes or moments that have really shaped uh, the way that you view the state of journalism in America today? Mm-hmm. Um, well, one, on that, on that marketplace of ideas, mm-hmm. one, you know, one, one thing I would like to see us do, and, and to some degree this is done, you see in, in like the legacy media organizations, they usually have you know, some, some reporters, sometimes very high-profile reporters, that cover media as their beat. Um, I, I think that sort of gets at, at a good idea, but you know, an even better way to do things is, all right, the New York Times has this outstanding, very popular uh, podcast, The Daily. Mm-hmm. You mentioned Joe Rogan, who has 
got a tremendous audience capture. Uh, you know, what, what I would like to see in a world like this is to have some New York Times journalists go on Rogan's podcast and vice versa. Right. Talk about these things in this forum. I mean, the, um, it's, the, it's the equivalent of what I just learned about when I got to Dartmouth, the Dartmouth Political Union. The, I, I'm very familiar with college Democrats and college Republicans and the Federalist Society at law schools, like all, all of these student organizations across the United States, but they've got a particular partisan or ideological bent, and that's not, not inherently bad. But what's even better is when you have a forum that is deliberately constructed to be a nonpartisan, non-ideological forum to actually talk about all of these things and challenge each other and challenge challenge yourself and your own ideas, your own your own presumptions. Right. Uh, you asked uh, about some of my my experiences um, on this this kind of red blue paradigm. Something that I saw covering the 2016 election when I was not a single candidate reporter. I was kind of a rover. And then in 2020, uh, being assigned to, to Biden, it sort of became clear watching the very competitive competitive primaries on both side, both major party sides in, in 2016 and on the Democratic side in 2020, that this red-blue paradigm at the very least unconsciously controls way too much about how we approach covering American elections, meaning the states that, that we visit. Uh, and it's not just us. This, this affects the way candidates operate, too, the way donors operate. But it ends up with a concentration of the entire you know, campaign industrial media complex, mm -hmm. if you will, in pockets of the country that, at, that don't add up to a representation of the whole. Uh, and that, that drops the ball, not just in terms of missing political analysis. We've all seen the stories of, you know, how absolutely shocked, not just surprised, but shocked many big newsrooms were in November of 2016 when, mm -hmm. when President Trump won. Um, so I don't just mean like election forecasting. I mean that when we don't widen our gaze, we are missing representative voices, like important parts of the American electorate that, mm -hmm. you know, add up. It's easy to say we, we neglect the powerless, and we often do, but we also neglect people that actually have demonstrated they hold a lot of power. A specific example of that is the, the way the Democratic primary played out in 2020. We're in New Hampshire, the first primary state. Mm -hmm. Iowa's the first caucus state. That was established back in the back in the 70s that kind of started to get the modern primary system started to get baked in. Uh, but over time, the Democratic Party in particular has become much less white. Iowa and New Hampshire are still overwhelmingly white, including their Democratic primary electorates. Joe Biden's particular part of the party in a very crowded primary field was anchored by non-white voters and by white voters that were much more moderate than the ascendant, very assertive progressives. Uh, progressives have been ascendant in the Democratic Party. That is true. Um, but they're still concentrated, or at least those that are most featured in a lot of media coverage are still concentrated in the largest metro areas, on the Upper East Coastline, on the West Coast, in the largest American cities between the coasts. It is true that Biden was weakest 
with progressives and ran at best a very clumsy campaign in Iowa and in New Hampshire. That is true. But it's also true that his campaign was never as weak and his competitors were never as strong as the narrative suggested. Even now, after he finished fourth in Iowa, fifth in New Hampshire, and then in a matter of weeks was suddenly the presumptive nominee, sort of the rewritten narrative is that black voters in South Carolina saved Joe Biden's candidacy. But even that misses to me the wider story, which is much simpler. It's a little harder and it's not as easy to sell in this conflict-driven paradigm, but it's simply that the order of the process mattered and a determinative part of the Democratic primary electorate just hadn't voted yet. But because the media apparatus, campaign apparatuses, and donor bases and attention have just almost by inertia accepted that Iowa and New Hampshire are first, so that's where we spend the entire prior year. Uh, We did not devote the resources we should have talking to voters in another part of the country that prove they do have a lot of power. Right. Yeah, so you're getting into um, a lot of really interesting trends, I think, within Democratic Party politics today, and also this notion of kind of having a critical mass, right, which our primary and caucus system demonstrates. So um, I wanted to ask about another sort of key trend within the, the demographic of the Democratic Party today. And to me, what I see is kind of the increasing suburbanization of the Democratic base um, and sort of the shift to a you know more upper middle class, college educated, mm-hmm. suburban type of voter. So um, I'm interested what your view on, on that trend is and maybe what you can say about how the um, the primaries this year might go for the Democrats as a result. Uh, it It is absolutely true that the way you describe it, that the party has, has shifted to a more suburban base. Mm-hmm. Um, that was a key to Democrats winning the House in 2018. Um, it was a key to Biden's nomination. When you look at that, that Super Tuesday slate that occurred three days after South Carolina, it wasn't just black voters. It was also a lot of white voters in cities and suburbs that cast Democratic primary ballots for Biden. And that's how he was able to build such a quick delegate lead that Bernie Sanders was just never going to close after Super Tuesday. Um, I think there is a question whether that is, whether Democrats can hold that. uh, Because, and I I don't, I don't care to speculate. I think that's, that can get dangerous, but I think that the, the idea that we need to understand is that, you know, uh, this Trumpian era is just hard. We're still in it. And it's hard to know what of these shifts that that began before Trump are accelerated only because of him or partly because of him? And then what what does that mean in terms of what people's policy preferences actually are? Mm-hmm. Uh, and those are those are still real real open questions. Um, and that that also gets into questions about like how we we cover these issues because if we, you know, if we cover only the horse race, only the us versus them, 
well, we aren't necessarily doing our job explaining the those policy questions and those policy debates. And and by that I mean, you know, you've got. I think it's pretty demonstrable in a lot of exit polling in 2020 that you know white suburban women with college degrees, for example, moved pretty strongly to Biden. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you can infer that Donald Trump was a major driver of that. Does that mean those women are now Democrats? Um, it, particularly in places like where I live in Atlanta. Atlanta's a very transient city. It draws people from all over the place, but it's still, even a lot of those transients grew up in the more conservative South. You know, a lot of, I mean, I, I fit that model. I grew up in a small town in Alabama. I went to college and now I live in the largest metro area in the region I grew up in. Uh, I have plenty of college friends that live in the northern suburbs and they are kind of the example of these voters that have always thought of themselves as Republicans. They didn't like Donald Trump. Joe Biden was palatable palatable to them. They still don't consider themselves Democrats. So what do those voters do? And I think we're just still in the middle of that because both parties are in their own related but separate struggles that are rooted some in policy, some in personality, some in culture. And that's just such a complicated mix. I just don't think we know. The My job, as I see it, and our job as journalists, is just to acknowledge how complicated that is and try to identify what all those variables are and just do good stories that, that get at those questions. Not to try to answer them definitively because we're not supposed to you know, if we do this prognostication game too much, that's not the point. It shouldn't be the point. Um, the bigger point behind that is just what all is going into these election outcomes and then what does that mean for policy outcomes and effects on people's lives. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I, I have to transition because I have to ask you about um, the most recent story in kind of the realm of, of journalism mm-hmm. and press protections. Um, so, you know, the leak of the mm-hmm. SCOTUS uh, draft opinion that, you know, sets the framework for the overturning of, of Roe versus Wade. Um, you know, of course, this, this um, story deals with an incredibly contentious and important issue in American society. But, you know, I want to first ask what you can say about the implications for journalism in particular and, and press protections. Uh, specific, I'll start with the, the press protections. That's the most practical Right. Uh, idea within the industry. I, I, there's There's been some good work done that's that's gotten lost in the deluge, I think, uh, explaining pretty plainly that, you know, there's no one can seem to find any law that would have been broken here. There's clearly been a breach of protocol within the court somewhere, and I don't mean to minimize the importance of that to the court, uh, or even minimize that as a variable for for the overall political nature and view of the court by the electorate. Those those are important things, but but I think it's been demonstrated through good journalists asking, you know, former federal prosecutors, lawyers of all kinds, like, you know, when Chief Justice Roberts pounds the table about an investigation and, you know, Senator McConnell and other other leaders on Capitol Hill talk about, you know, punished to whatever extent it, they can be. Well, that's very carefully calibrated language that almost admits they kind of know that there's no, there's no case coming here. Like, I don't think we're going to see a leaker if they are identified. 
charged with anything. Uh, I, there's, I, I mean, I'm not a lawyer. It's dangerous to get into this this idea of you know theft of government property. Perhaps, but I just this is not a case where I where I see some sort of grand takeaway that, that becomes chilling for, for what we do. I, I think it's a fascinating example of the way Washington works. Some of the biggest stories when the government's doing, doing things that it's not trying to get out there, or at least not on that schedule, you know, are, are made, made a, first made apparent to the public because somebody with access to the document leaks them. That's not new. And I think... That, that's what happened here. So if anything, I think this reaffirms the role that the press plays of being a window into government activities that government officials want, want to shield or want to control on their own timeline. You know, eventually a decision is going to come out. That's public. But, you know, somebody for whatever reason decided the public should see this draft out of the usual order that Chief Justice Roberts and institutionalists prefer. But that's, that's a, writ large, that is a good thing for journalism. That's a demonstration of what our role is. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if that answers, yeah. answers your question. No, absolutely. Um, um, yeah. I mean, I could, I could say, too, on the way we have covered that story, uh, here's where I'll be more critical of our, of our business. Um, again, there has been very good work done in the days since uh, out around the country talking more about the effect of what overturning Roe would mean. So it's not that that work has not been done. It is, it is out there on a lot of platforms. Discerning citizens can find it. But a lot of the chatter driven out of Washington on Twitter, on cable, um, Washington datelines, still have focused so heavily on the leak mm-hmm. and the arguments about the leak. And that is a, it is a story independently at the start. It's a part of the story, broader storyline, a few days, and I don't know if there's a magic time, maybe the third day story, once you get past the first few days, the fact that that draft was leaked is not a material variable in the most important stories that we should be doing, which are about the seismic nature of the opinion that, that this portends and what that means on the ground. Yeah. All right. Well, I think that concludes our, our interview for today. Thank you so much, Mr. Barrow. Um, again, I'm Kavya Navarthi, and this is Rocky Talk. This podcast is a production of the Nelson A. Rockefeller Center for Public Policy and the Social Sciences. The views expressed in this podcast are those of the speakers and not of the Rockefeller Center. This episode was produced and edited by Laura Hemlock. I hope you'll join us for our next episode. If you want more information, you can find us at rockefeller.dartmouth.edu.